Hi, everybody. Welcome back to a Minnesota Bound podcast. Your host today, Ron Shera. And I'm very excited to have as my special guest today. We're going to talk about uh, careers. And that means outdoor writing careers with um, my former colleague, longtime friend, Dennis Anderson of uh, Star Tribune fame. And uh, uh, we both were worked for the Star Tribune at one time. And uh, uh, Dennis is still there as the, the uh, outdoor columnist. And so, Dennis, welcome to uh, our podcast. Thank you, Ron. Happy to be here. Well, happy to be talking to you again. Yeah, it's uh, uh, sometimes we don't talk often enough, but we'll try to cover some of that today. So uh, just I'm going to tell the folks what I know about you, and that is you started uh, a journalism career in Ely, Minnesota, and then uh, ended up at the St. Paul Pioneer Press as the outdoor writer. I don't know if that was your first gig there, but you can fill me in on that. And then I don't know what year you you uh, came to the Star Tribune and joined me there. But uh, let's start there. Uh, uh, how Just kind of overall, Dennis, how did you get into writing and then outdoor writing? Well, that's a good question, and uh, I guess the kind of a roundabout way, as most people do, uh, I think. Um, but I always was interested in writing, uh, and wasn't sure that I would make a living as a writer. But I was always interested in writing. I think when I was young, and I uh, was a, an English major in college, and thought I would—I uh, don't know, you know, I, who knows when you're in college and just out of college, what you think you might be, what you become. But I, I was interested in fiction and, and thought that I would probably go that, that route um, at some point or another. I got out of college uh, at a time when, <clears throat> in my head, I didn't want a real job. I did interview for um, uh, a, a journalism job. Actually, I was a sports information director, the student sports information director in college at the University of Minnesota Morris, which is a small school. So they, what they call SID, sports information director, is a student part-time job. I think it was 20 hours a week or something like that, of which I probably put in 10. But um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, so I interviewed in, for a, a sport. It was a sports writing job, which I didn't really want to write about anyway. But it, that, the offer of pay was so low, it was like 105 or something a week or something that I thought he was kidding, but he but he wasn't kidding. It was a suburban newspaper outside Minneapolis, and so um, you know I I was happy to dispel that idea. And uh, one thing led to another. And I ended up driving a truck uh, semi coast to coast for about two and a half years. Um, I knew you one, did that. I knew you did that. You write about or refer to your trucking days. I go, wow, that's that's quite a jump from being a uh, well. It's not too big a jump from being an English major, um, <laughs> which, which qualifies you for not much. I remember. <laughs> Uh, at when I was a student at Morris, I had a, uh, a professor, probably from my first two years. Uh, it must have been, um, but he was uh, 
he was eclectic, very literary-minded uh, in his lifestyle and his and his professional interests. Anyway, so uh, I remember most poignantly about him as I helped him. He bought an old school bus, and I helped him load uh, his family. He had like a couple kids and a wife, load all their junk in it and on top of it, and then he was going to Alberta to be a pig farmer. Oh, my. And... Uh, he thought that was uh, next uh, the progression, natural progression of being an English professor. Um, and so at one of the last things he ever said to me was, uh, if you ever graduate from this school, um, which apparently in his mind was up in the air, uh, then you should drive a truck. And I didn't intentionally do that, but um, I had some school loans. I didn't like that idea. I wanted to pay those off. I didn't have any money. Um, and I had a dog and a Harley Davidson. Those were my possessions. And, <laughs> and uh, so I uh, got a job with a moving company. And that, that's kind of an entry-level truck driving because they have to be young and, and uh, not necessarily dumb enough to lift furniture because you have to load the truck and unload it. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, you have to be pretty fit to be doing that. And it was great. I mean, I enjoyed I enjoyed it a lot. We have 48 states, irregular routes, so you're never going to the same place. You met a lot of different people that, whom you moved. Um, you know, everyone from military people who had no money, <clears throat> um, and there was government moves to executives who, you know, you're moving them from, one big place to another big place, one big job to another big job. And um, I had my dog with me in the truck. And, um, yeah, so it was it was good. I got enough money to go back to school. This time I went back to the U uh, for a master's in journalism. I figured I better get something that qualifies me for something. And, and uh, so that was I your, did that. So that was your jump to Ely, Minnesota? Yep, after I finished, you know, I... And my brother was up in northern Minnesota, and another a friend, a mutual friend, but his good friend, had moved to Ely, uh, who had been an advertising major at Michigan State with my brother. Um, another friend was a dentist, at my friend of my uh, brother's from Michigan State. Um, and the idea was uh, that you couldn't go far enough north. This was uh, mid well, I moved up there in 77, but they moved up there before that. And they were headed actually for the Yukon. Um, that, uh, Ely, northern Minnesota, BWCA stuff was sort of a uh, preamble to going to the Yukon. And so everything was headed north, and one thing kind of led to another. And um, my friend, the, the guy in the advertising game, <clears throat> he had become friends with a woman named Columbia Childers. Uh, she and her husband, Fred, owned the Ely Miner, which since 1895 was the only paper in Ely. Uh, unfortunately, Fred died uh, quite literally on the press, an old letter press. Wow. And so Columbia had been writing it for a number of years and um, really doing, you know, just a very... Uh, she's a wonderful, she was a wonderful woman, but they had a poor job. And so another guy came to town, his name was Miles Ockus, came from Red Lake, Minnesota, started the Ely Echo, name you know well. 
And uh, the, uh, the businessman in town got behind the Ely Echo, and it turns out Miles was a little more inflammatory than they were counting on. But um, nonetheless, they backed him. And so in desperation, Bob, my friend up there in advertising, uh, worked briefly for Columbia. She told, he told her about me. So I went up there, and the two of us tried to rekindle the paper in a good old newspaper war against the Echo. Well, that was how that started. And when was that? Uh, uh, what year did you go to the Pioneer Press and real quick? How well, yeah, so that, yeah, so that was 77, uh, went to Ely, and then uh, I started, or 76 rather, and I started, I think, in 79. I got a, I, I was losing money from the moment I went to Ely until the moment I left. Um, <laughs> and uh, interestingly, D- Doug Smith was working for the, the Echo at that time. Uh, who you know, and I used to, who later became an outdoor writer working with me and you at the Star Tribune. And then also at the Echo was uh, Sam Cook. Oh, wow. Who became the outdoor writer at the Duluth paper. Yeah. Um, so but I was, yeah, yeah, so it was exciting up there, believe me. Um, it, was a, it was a true newspaper war. Interesting. Um, yeah, but you so, weren't you weren't writing about how to catch fish. You were writing um, city council well, t- writing everything. Yeah, writing everything. And I'll give you I'll give you an idea of the competition. So one week we we both published on Wednesdays, and we both delivered. When nobody had delivery people, boys or girls, so we mailed the paper to our subscribers. And one time, uh, and so both uh, uh, Doug and Sam just like I did and my colleague Bob had to deliver the papers to the newsstand around town and then take all the papers to the post office and they mailed them to the people in Italy and they got them on Thursday. Well, I was I had started a uh, series called Religion in Italy. I thought that would be something that would touch everybody and get everybody you know, interested in reading. So I'm walking uh, around and we're always interested to see. We could see Doug and Sam putting in in their uh, boxes, you know, so we're interested to see what their main headline was. So I had religion in Ely in the top of the fold there, and you could see it through the newspaper box. And I finally got over to look at theirs, and they had about 150-point birthday axe murder, exclamation point. (laughs) 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 I figure, how could I possibly miss that story? And uh, oh, it turns it turns out they were recounting the ten year anniversary of that occurring. Okay, um, in Ely. So yeah. So anyway, I wanted to be a. I sent out. I wanted to be some sort of reporter or something. So I sent out to some papers, uh, some clips, and the guys in St. Paul said we don't have any writing jobs available right now, but we've got some editing jobs to get you in the shop and see what happens. So. That's how I ended up over there. Was Hank Keyborn the outdoor writer at that time? Hank the Tank. Yeah. Um, he was. Yeah, Hank the Tank. And, and he uh, retired or died, and you took over. 1980, he retired, and uh, I, I got the job. And he told me, uh, he sent me a note, you know, and he said, because I worked nights as a, on the editing desk, and he said, we should probably get together before I leave. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, good idea. So I showed up one morning and he said, there's only two things you need to know to do this job. 
And uh, he said, the first thing is, in the summer we run that fishing contest, you have to get all that information to promotion so we get it in every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And you remember, that was a great fishing contest. Yes, um, it was. I remember it. You know, Absolutely. Because we had verified, um, you know, bait shops and that, and you, it really was a very good telling about where the fish were biting and, um, you know, how big they were and how frequent they, and it was good. I mean, that was during the age, in the 80s, when Saginaw, if you recall, was going great for walleyes, big walleyes, and they would always win, you know, every every Sunday and that, and um, other lakes as well. So that was good. So he said, yeah, I got to get that fishing contest thing in. And then the other thing he said is, come December, give Federal a call, and they'll put a case of shells in your garage. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true also. <laughs> well, that was funny. Um, uh, well, you know, you took all, uh, took over. Um, I had it kind of easy competitively when Hank was there because Hank, you know, he wasn't the most ambitious guy and, um, uh, but uh, entertaining and, and a wonderful person. I got to know him and, uh, we were always uh, good friends. Uh, and, uh, of course the story I have is it was the governor's fishing opener. And as you well know, those governor things, they would have an open bar in the afternoon and an open bar is something Hank never, uh, you know, avoided. And, uh, uh, I went up to my room to file my opening day story and I came back down. Hank was still standing there. And, uh, he said, uh, Ron, I go, what? He said, uh, do you, do you file your story? I says, yeah. He says, what'd you say? I said, well, you know, just <laughs> talked about the, he says, uh, could I see it? He said, I'll just change some things around. I said, <laughs> I said, sure. I handed him my copy, and he filed his own. It was, he kind of turned my story upside down. I didn't care, you know. He was, he was a, he was a good guy, and uh, it was a fishing opener story. It wasn't much else, but uh, you established yeah. yourself, uh, Dennis, at the uh, Pioneer Press, and I think, uh, without saying one one of your big accomplishments there, and maybe I should ask you what you think it is, but I think was, of course, uh, you're reflecting on the state of pheasants in Minnesota and wondering why we couldn't do better. And uh, and you started uh, campaigning for uh, pheasants forever. That's one of the uh, things I remember about your tenure there at the Pioneer Press. The other, of course, was um, you discovered all the poaching going on in Louisiana among duck hunters down there. And there was a helicopter deal involved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, and I think that moved the needle, but certainly nothing moved the needle uh, like your, your stories about what we can do better to increase pheasants in Minnesota, which became pheasants forever. You want to kind of get into that a little bit? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I went, I did, as I said, I went to school at Morris, and that traditionally is pretty good pheasant country, west central Minnesota. And and so my friends and I hunted a lot, um, uh, you know, hunted a lot. And in fact, hunted probably too much. I can remember duck hunting my friend Willie Smith, who went on to be a pharmacist and just retired in Wilmer. We would go out duck hunting in the morning, and he had the, those science people. You want to stay away from that science building. 
they always have eight o'clock classes, whereas English, they stroll in about noon or a little after. <laughs> and uh, after then you still have an hour to throw Frisbees on the mall. But um, so we would always sometimes we'd be duck hunting and, and uh, Willie would say, I better check to see if we're having a quiz in physics. And I had a 58 Oldsmobile, um, and uh, we had all the decoys in the back, so we'd have to throw everything in the back and peel into town and drive up behind the science building, and Willie would run up to the door of his class and his waiters and see if it looked like he was handing out a quiz. And if he wasn't, we were back hunting, and if he was, he just walked into class and his waiters. So we were... <laughs> We were hunting a lot, but we could see, um, you know, we'd go back every opener for the pheasant opener to Morris, and we would see areas that just went away that were drained or, you know, turned into corn or soybeans that used to be pheasant habitat. It was pretty evident. And so, um, you know, it, it just was sort of a natural progression to say that we're not doing much. And at that time, you'll recall South Dakota actually did come up with a pheasant uh, plan. And I thought, well, South Dakota has one. We should be able to get one. And, you know, it, it, was a, it, it was a fit and start type of thing, but it caught on because timing is everything, as you know. And mm-hmm. timing, uh, there was uh, still multiple generations of pheasant hunters in Minnesota who's, who remembered the good old days and wanted them back. Um, I was naive enough to think that... Uh, you know, if we did A, B, and C, pheasant populations would, um, you know, rebound significantly. And some of that was true, but, you know, some of it was A, B, C caused uh, responses in farm programs that were, that indeed pushed it the other way, you know, expanded production and so on and so forth. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's been good. And I know you've played a big role in it and continued uh, today as well to, with the TV show and so forth. Well, certainly a, a, a long feather in your hat and uh, your name will always be associated with uh, Pheasants Forever. And, um, well, listen, we have to take a short break here, uh, Cowboy, as I would just tell folks, for some reason, I guess it's because your interest in uh, horses and cutting horses, I nicknamed you Cowboy a long time ago. You you, you don't seem to uh, dislike that title, so I use it. It's Cowboy. better than most. You've seen my you've seen my email. <laughs> You'll be we'll be back with more uh, chit chat with outdoor writer Dennis Anderson with the uh, uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune and uh, more interesting. Like where does he catch all those big fish? I'll be back after this. Hewitt Docks, Lifts, and Pond Two Legs began in a small south-central Minnesota town with a mission to make dock install and removal easier by inventing the Rolodock. Well, now the company has evolved to provide everything you might need to improve your lake time. In addition to the classic Rolodock or the new Ultra Dock system, Hewitt offers all-terrain staircases, gangways, canopies, and lifts, along with any accessory you might need. Celebrate 50 years of business with us. Go to HewittRad.com to enter for a chance to win a free dock and monthly prizes. Hewitt Docks, lifts, and pontoon legs. Work hard, play harder. You deserve a Hewitt. Hey, it's my turn to talk about the greatest drinking water, bathing water, 
water period I have in my home, all brought to me by the Connecticut water system. Connecticut. I've had it for years. Uh, you've heard me perhaps boasting about it before. Uh, Connecticut, I can't speak highly enough of it. Um, just from the top, no electricity. That's good. Uses very little salt. And just a little background, uh, where I live along the Rum River, north of Anoka, uh, the water when I bought that home, uh, full of iron, stained everything, uh, and it didn't smell very good either. Uh, the Connecticut folks came in, put a system in there. Uh, all of the iron stain went away. The odor went away. And in, and in its place, I ended up with great drinking water right at the, at the uh, kitchen sink. Uh, or great water for showers, et cetera. I just can't say enough about Connecticut. So check them out at... Uh, Connecticut.com. Did you know that a propane gas furnace lifespan averages 20 years, while electric heat pumps only last about 14 years? And propane furnaces work in all temperatures while delivering warm and consistent heat in your home. Why buy two heating systems when propane furnace can do it all? Lasts longer, works better, and costs less. These things and more are being done today with propane, the right energy right now. Welcome back to the second edition of our Minnesota Bound podcast. Ron Shera here with you and my special guest, longtime friend and fellow outdoor writer, Dennis Anderson of the Star Tribune. Um, uh, Dennis, you're, we were talking earlier about your role in Pheasants Forever. I mean, it's uh, not many, it's not often that some columns that uh, you wrote or anybody would write would result in a nationwide or maybe close to nationwide, certainly national uh, conservation organization, which is what Pheasants Forever has become now, evolved into Quail Forever, et cetera. Um, I mean, that, that's quite an accomplishment if you think about it. And uh, uh, do you reflect on that at all? Uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I reflect on it sometimes in a in kind of in a realistic way. Uh, and when I say, I guess when I say realistic way, that timing was important. But, you know, none of that happens in a vacuum. Uh, you know, if I wanted to... I mean, it was my idea. I can still remember sitting at my desk and I came up with the name. I can still remember walking over to this artist we had. Now, he might still be there, Kirk Lytle. And, and I had pulled out of the the uh, portfolio as we used to have a library of photos, not images online like we do now. And um, I said here, and it was a, the pheasant that looks exactly like the logo today. I said, can you draw me a pheasant like this? And painted I need a logo and, and about a half hour later Kirk had it <laughs> and I walked over to another guy Denny Lean who you know I think a reporter at that time retired now for a few years from the Pioneer Press who is a pheasant hunter and, and hunts with me still today and, and uh, I said okay we're starting this bird group uh, um, I'm not going to have uh, uh, member number one, but if you want to be n member number two and give me 15 bucks, we're good to go. And so he gave me 15 bucks. <laughs> but then that was just the, the start of it at the time. I mean, uh, I had wrote about it and I said, oh, I think Minnesota should do this. What do you think, readers? You know, and I at the time, uh, I had been sort of not kicked out, but out of we didn't have enough room in that 
kind of crummy ancient building at 55 East 4th Street. So the company uh, leased a few uh, cavernous offices over in the Minnesota building across the street. One of them for me and one of them for the humor writer, uh, Bill Farmer. If you remember, I remember Bill. Bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is great. And well, uh, he, he, was, he was so nuts that when we started having PF banquets, to, we wanted to have something unique. So he dressed in drag. <laughs> oh, gosh. And um, anyway, so people were sending me cash in envelopes. Um, and, uh, I had to sort of account for all that. And, but my point ultimately is there were a number of people within an arm's reach who, who helped all of that as soon as the idea kind of was laid out. Uh, certainly one was Jeff Finden who became the first executive director. He was our national advertising manager at the Pioneer Press and a friend of mine and a friend of farmers. And so... Um, kind of that was a help, obviously. But my circle of friends, Norberg especially, who then was deputy chairman of Control Data, and um, a few others, Walt Bruning, uh, certainly Chuck and Lorelei were, Delaney were on the first uh, board of directors, Bud Grant was on the first board of directors, Bud and um, Ted Berger were on the first board of directors, mm-hmm. um, and others. And so some of those people especially Norb and uh, Walt Bruning and others had understandings about uh, how to form a group, um, how to form a board of directors, and, and so on and so forth. And, and that, that was critical. Timing was critical. So when you ask me if I reflect on it, I reflect on uh, the parts of it really that were serendipitous that that you know involved a lot of people who later became i mean i the first fundraiser for pheasants forever was from a guy who's still around and uh was a lawyer maybe he wasn't at that time anyway he said uh, hey i can i can raise some money for your group get it off the ground and said uh uh, come over to my house and i thought it was a planning meeting it was kind of a crummy house in saint paul and uh, so I go over there one night and I, you know, I could have been bushwhacked. It could have been set up. <laughs> I, I go, I go in there and it's three guys and a case of beer. Oh boy. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, on memories, you know, on memories. Yeah, that's you know, uh, with me sitting across the river as your uh, competitor, outdoor writer for the opposing uh, newspaper, I thought, well, this is pretty, pretty spectacular. What can I do? So I, I, I became a life sponsor <laughs> so I think that's the least i could yeah. do uh and well, you were there from the, you were there from the beginning and so was bob shrank you know yep yeah but but we, you know the feather and the cap went to you because it was your idea and you you pushed it but uh so you know um that's that's a wonderful story in itself and it's still going on you should uh, wear your hat proudly uh as for myself uh cowboy you you, I don't know if you know, may or may not know, but uh, I, I got addicted to wild turkey hunting in the Black Hills when I was working for the South Dakota Game and Fish Department uh, in 1967, 1968. I moved to Minneapolis. I got hired by the, the I got a call from the Tribune. They liked what I was doing in South Dakota. Anyway, I became their first full-time outdoor writer, and I brought my turkey addiction with me, and um 
And I kept going back to the Black Hills every spring because there was, wasn't any turkey season in Minnesota and hardly any turkeys. Uh, and so one day I walked into uh, Roger Holmes' office. He was the wildlife chief. And I says to him, I said, Minnesota needs turkeys. I said, why don't, why don't you guys start paying more attention to bringing turkeys back in Minnesota? And Roger says to me, he says, uh, I don't have that money in my budget. If you want turkeys in Minnesota, you get the money yourself. So I, I, I very boldly says, okay, I will. And uh, uh, put together the first Minnesota chapter of the National Wild Turkey Federation. We raised uh, $12,000, I think, in the first banquet, which which set a national, national Wild Turkey Federation record, by the way. And uh, we started uh, uh, paying for DNR's Turkey Trapper. And, uh, uh, and first off, it was also paying for some food plots, which they finally figured out turkeys didn't need. Anyway, uh, that became then... That was the first chapter. Now there's dozens, and we all know turkeys are everywhere. So that's kind of the feather in my hat. I, uh, but uh, not on the national level that that you accomplished with Pheasants Forever. But I'm I'm proud of you, and I'm proud of myself for what we as outdoor writers brought to the table. Well, there are a lot of turkey addicts in Minnesota now. I can tell you that. Yeah, for fact, sure. For sure. There are people who used to hunt other things who don't even hunt other things now. All they can think about is turkeys. And there's some Edina housewives who'd like to hang me because I tell them yes, the turkeys are chasing their kids. I go, well, you can blame me. You know. Uh, yeah. That. that is a strange behavior on turkeys' part, chasing kids. What they it do. is. It is. Well, they kind of they can become kind of domesticated, and that's what happens if they uh, they're smart enough to know if you're trying to shoot them, uh, especially if you miss. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so you and I have um, we worked together for a while, and uh, then I got the TV opportunity and uh, decided I couldn't do both, and uh, I regret some of that because I thought you and I could have put together some tremendous outdoor pages, and we did uh, working together. Uh, but but uh, the outdoor writing has changed now, and I know uh, I, I'm still a subscriber to the Star Tribune. I still look forward to your uh, work, but uh, it certainly has changed and, and uh, kind of went reduced, so to speak, as far as space. Well, not just you know, the whole paper. <clears throat> you know, it's no secret what's happened to newspapers, um, you know, with the Internet. And, you know, the first thing, and that seems old school now, but the first thing that hit us was Craigslist, which you barely, people barely talk about anymore. But when they took all of our classifieds, I don't, it was multi-multi-millions to the Star Tribune alone each year. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's been a progression and, and coincident with that. Kids aren't reading papers as much, maybe aren't reading news as much. You know, we used to be the gathering place that, you know, you'd read if you were in high school sports, you'd read about the sports pages. You might read about the Vikings, but then you got away from it. But later when you got married and you had kids and you started to get, uh, involved and maybe saw what your property taxes were you started getting involved in the community you wanted to read the paper and um now there's so many that that pie is being sliced up so many different ways that that uh financially it's just not the economic the engine that it that it used to be and so that affects everything and especially affects 
the outdoor, uh, you know, writing part of it because we spend money. You know, mm -hmm. sports spends money, but you know, you, any if you and I had been city side columnists, we could have put our feet up and uh, and uh, I mean, all you need is a notebook or a laptop and a pen. Yep. You know, but if you want to represent the state of Minnesota, which is an honor to do, and I think you see it the same way, to validate, especially because when you're in a big paper like that and you're working with people who grow up wanting to be quote-unquote journalists only, and you want to represent what people are doing in their lifestyle, whether they're camping, fishing, hunting, hiking, paddling, boating, whatever, you want to represent that, and then you also want to conserve it and join and lead uh, and or help out on the conservation and a report on the legislation that affects those, you know, pastimes and interests. Um, and, and so you're sitting there and you and I know you, I know you well enough and I sat next to you long enough to know that sometimes you just want to scream and you say, don't you people see how important this is? Yeah, and, for sure. And instead, instead you're seeing story after story about some linebacker, the Vikings drafted in the fifth round and mm -hmm. whether, you know, he's going to get his speed down to four, nine or not, yeah. you know, right. Stuff that um, means nothing in the long run. Yeah. Um, it means nothing. And I understand that people want to be entertained um, and so forth, but you know, there's a strong argument and I'm, and I made it oftentimes to no avail, but I said to the former sports editor uh, we had, I said, you give me, your sports pages and we'll just publish outdoor news and put your sports on the back of the Sunday sports section. And in a year we won't have lost any subscribers. We maybe have more. Um, <laughs> you didn't you know. take the challenge. I take it. It never, yeah, it never <laughs> happened. And, uh, and it even, it's, even, it's even worse, as you know, with you, uh, you've worked for a lot of editors and some quote unquote, get it. And some not only don't get it, they reject it. Aggressively, yeah. yeah. Most don't get it. I had one sports editor who thought he should take everybody out to lunch individually. I was one of the last ones he took out. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I remember sitting there, and he he's trying to make conversation. So he says to me, uh, he "says I walk around the city lakes, Ron. Uh, what are those ducks with the green heads?" <laughs> uh -huh. He asked yeah. that question. I knew I was in trouble. Galbraith, I have to take another uh, quick break here. When we come back, I'd like to uh, uh, hear from you some of your favorite memories or adventures, and uh, if you'd ever want to go back and repeat some of those. So uh, I'll look forward to that. I'll share a few of my own, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, go from there. You're listening to Minnesota Bound Podcast. Ron Sherry here with my special guest, Dennis Anderson. We'll be back after these messages. Hey everybody, Bill Shirk, the man about the woods. It's time to plan your fall hunt in North Dakota. Get this, with an estimated 3.4 million breeding ducks, North Dakota Central Region is prime habitat for hunting waterfowl. In fact, right now, the state's breeding duck index sits 38% above the long-term average. And the water's up too. The spring water index is up 616% over 2021. That's a good thing. Now, when you consider that North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting, guess what? You've got an outdoor oasis. 
For the latest information about public hunting lands and private land open to sportsmen and women, visit North Dakota Game and Fish Department. Bag your limit this fall in North Dakota. Visit LegendaryND.com. Hi there, Ron Shera here for Star Bank. If you're putting your money into mega banks down the street, who knows where that money's being used? Bank locally. Keep your money local with a community bank that actually cares about you, your family, your business, and your goals. Check out the bank we use at Minnesota Bound. Try Minnesota's own Star Bank. You can find them online at starbank.net. When you call Star Bank, you actually hear a real living person answering the phone. StarBank has 10 convenient locations around Minnesota to serve you and all the mobile banking products that you need to manage your money. Check out all that StarBank has to offer at StarBank.net. Welcome back to the Minnesota Bound podcast. Ron Sherry, your host today. My special guest, Dennis Anderson, outdoor writer for the Minneapolis Star Tribune for umpteen years. And um, uh, Dennis, you're you're almost... Uh, there as long as I was. I was there about 29 years, uh, give or take a year or two. Uh, how long have you been there now? You were, were you were there longer than 29 years, weren't you? I don't know. I think it was 29 or 30. Really? Jeez, I okay. thought I was hanging in there trying to beat your record. I could have quit a long time ago. 1968, oh. I wrote my first thing for them. And uh, I can't remember when I wrote my last, but... Um, well, it depends. I mean, you were, I don't know when you quit being full-time, but then we had you on a part-time deal contract yeah. for a long time. But anyway, I came over there in 93, so whatever that is. All right. Okay. Well, that's almost jeepers. Yeah. You're, 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 you're going to tie me here pretty soon. Well, listen, yeah. uh, lots of water going over the dam, so to speak. You've taken umpteen uh, adventures as I did. Uh, is there one or two that stand out in your mind as uh, uh, one you'll never forget, memorable, where you're threatened with your life or you're not threatened? Did you catch the fish of your lifetime? Your hunt? Uh, if I ask you for one adventure that you might want to retake again, what would you say? Yeah, that's a tough question, um, but a good question. I, I would classify first anything I did with the our two sons, uh, you know, outdoors would, would always be up there. And I know you feel that way about your daughters and your wife as well, because it always enhances it. Um, and we did a lot of things together, fishing and hunting. And I, one, one trip I think about a lot, I'm not sure. I would probably do it again at this age, but I, I, I don't know if our younger son was born yet, but I know our older son, Trevor was only a couple of years old, but I, I, uh, Against my wife's wishes, I, I leased a couple horses and uh, uh, went up into the San Juan Mountains by myself up to about 10,400 feet um, and camped out there uh, elk hunting for a week. And uh, two things about it. One was uh, it snowed heavily the first night, about a foot and a half. <laughs> and uh, that wasn't ultimately too disappointing but it did change things because the elk went down below but the other thing was about the last thing i did because you could buy the, that license uh, for the last season in colorado i think you still can over the counter but i was uh the guy who was leasing me the horses or uh renting me the horses 
he uh, went to, uh, we were at the sporting goods shop and I was buying a license and we were both standing there and the, and the guy behind the counter said, well, you want the, a deer license with that? And the, the guy, the horse guy said, you don't want a deer license. I can be any deer that high up at this time of year. And it was like 200 bucks or something and the company was paying anyway. But I thought, well, okay, I'll save 200 bucks. So I go up and uh, get up that first morning and all that snow and struggling with feeding the horses and all that stuff. And, and uh, end up, just as the sun is coming up, looking over a snow-covered meadow where it would seem there might be some elk, you know, but they had gone down below. I ultimately figured that out. But as the sun came up, and I looked across the meadow, which is only about 150 yards across, with my binoculars, and I thought, what the heck? There are two huge mule deer bucks lying there side by side. <laughs> and I didn't have a license. I mean, they were, they were just spectacular. Giants. Mm. And then they stood up, and they stood there for about a half hour, and uh, that really was uh, that and uh, keeping enough uh, wood to keep that little stove in my tent going those were the highlights of that trip but um had a, it was a good it was a good time in a lot of different ways so exciting you know you know i remember uh you you doing that and uh, i remember also thinking i would not uh i wouldn't have the nerve to do that i wouldn't feel that self-sufficient to be by myself and take horses up because you know you were probably you were a better cowboy than ever i could think of being but it, it that was a very bold. Uh, the only thing I kind of chuckled about is, as you and I both have taken trips where we come back empty-handed. This was another one where you have to you, you write and you say, "Well, I didn't get anything, but I had a hell of a good time." Um, uh, <laughs> so, but that you know, you, if you take those chances, uh, nothing's guaranteed uh, for sure. Um, I remember uh, kind of similar, but I was in a camp uh, my first trip on horseback into. Uh, the British Columbia and, um, uh, but I was with a guide and the whole, the whole thing. And I did end up getting a, uh, my first bull elk who now is on the wall, not very far from where I'm sitting at the moment. Um, also, of course I, I'm confusing some of my newspaper adventures with TV adventures. Um, although I think I wrote about them. I've been to the Amazon twice and, uh, very memorable there, fishing for peacock bass and uh, hanging with uh, natives that still live in grass huts and adventures like like that. Um, I'd like to go there. I've never been there. I'd like to fish for peacock bass. Yeah, well, that's a, it's a great fish, and there's piranhas there. We, I remember uh, using cut uh, raw chicken and fishing for the black piranha, not the red piranha. The black one is more solitary, and we fried them up like bluegills, and they're very good very tasty but um yeah but for years you you may remember i i re went to manitoba saskatchewan even alberta and chased ducks um uh went to california one time uh, of all places to go duck hunting in the uh, uh in, in the uh, valley there um the capital of uh, i can't think of it uh, california now and sacramento sacramento valley and I remember a line that I wrote because uh, I was astounded what I saw in the sky that morning. There was, I wrote, uh, there were so many ducks 
in the air, there wasn't room for one more. Uh, uh, that was because of the rice that they grow in that valley. And it was wow. Pacific Flyway also doesn't get the pressure of others. Anyway, you and I have lots of, uh, lots of memories and, um, um, I don't know. It's a, it's a pretty good lifestyle. Wouldn't you say cowboy? Yeah. You know, uh, your old friend, uh, um, uh, oh, come on. I just blanked. Um, the, who wrote the, uh, who wrote, uh, outdoors for the star, um, not Trent, not Bob, but, um, a mustachio friend. Yes. Um, I, I, I know who you're thinking too. I can't think of his name. Oh, come. I'm embarrassed. Yeah. How could we think? But uh, yeah, what he, I had him on my radio show, my now defunct radio show at the time, and he said, "You you don't get to be rich, but you get to live like you're rich." <laughs> and uh, part of that, part of that's true. Yep. Um, sure. Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, it's it's all been it's all been great. I mean, it's it's definitely changed, and the, it could be. It could be made better. The job could be made better, and I think that journalism could be more have a broader impact. Uh, but in Minnesota, nevertheless, um, we've been lucky so far. I, th I think one thing we haven't talked about is how important it is that uh, the voice of conservation be heard in Minnesota, because. Let's face it, if you and I, and we have to be pretty much a columnist, um, but if we hadn't done it and we didn't do it, uh, that would that's a pretty big void. And as you know, there's a lot of shenanigans that go on over at the Capitol. Yeah, um, tell me. That yeah. have not only don't help conservation of natural resources, but actually harm them. So. Well, you got a, another feather in your head because you're a survivor, as I am, and that is... Um, a lot of outdoor writers from other newspapers, Des Moines Register, and other, they're, they're gone. And uh, some big newspapers don't even have outdoor writers anymore. I remember when the New York Times had an outdoor writer. Nelson, Nelson Bryant. And he's gone. And he hunted geese with him. And, yeah, and he was good. And, and then uh, Chicago, O'Malley, and then Tom John Hussar more recently. Yeah, um, that's gone. And then the great one at the, in Denver, both of them at the Post and the Rocky Mountain News. Harley Myers. Yeah, yeah, wow. exactly. Portland had a, and they made a long run at the big section that didn't make it. Um, the L.A. Times made a uh, run at the big uh, section. Now, more, mainly they they featured sailing and things like that, but it was all outdoor stuff um, and. Uh, I think even Anchorage is uh, suffering up there somewhat. So it's, it's amazing. It, yeah, it is. Uh, I guess. Well, you're you're still a survivor, cowboy, and we're happy for that. Uh, I'm running out of time here. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us and uh, keep. Uh, it's been fun. Away. Thank you. Thank you for asking. And uh, <laughs> uh, hang in there. That about does it for the Minnesota Bond Podcast. The stories behind the stories brought to you by. Connecticut Water Treatment Systems. We'd also like to thank the Minnesota Historical Society, Minnesota Propane Association, Star Bank, Hewitt Docks, and North Dakota Tourism. Until next time, don't forget to introduce a kid to the great outdoors. Mm -hmm.